2: Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. We are really looking forward to our Women's Day event tonight. Over 500 of you snapped up the free tickets. But if you're raging that you missed out, don't worry because we will be live streaming the event on Facebook at 8 p.m. this evening. Please do join us. We did a sound check yesterday with some of the women and it's going to be fantastic with a really great bunch of women telling stories of challenges they faced and overcome. So that's over on the Irish Times Facebook page at 8 p.m. tonight. I see you there, I hope. And if you don't get to go, of course, we'll be bringing you all those stories on Monday in our special International Women's Day edition of the podcast. And of course, tickets are still available for the third season of our big night in, which kicks off on Saturday. We're very excited with Mary McAleese, former president of Ireland, And you can get tickets to that by going to irishtimes.com forward slash big night in. Now, I have a bit of a long explanation for today's episode because it's about an international story that some of you will be aware of and some of you might not be. So do bear with me as I explain it to you. Today's episode takes us far away to the northwestern province of Xinjiang in China where in the past couple of years there's been growing concern about what is happening to the Uyghur population and other mostly Muslim minorities in the province. An estimated at least one million of them have been interned in what the Chinese call re-education camps, but which human rights bodies say are actually forced labour camps where horrific things are happening to between one and three million Uyghurs.
0: These Uyghur women uh, are subjected to mass rape, gang rape, there have been reports of Han Chinese men coming into these camps and choosing what they deem as, you know, beautiful women and choosing them to to rape them or to actually get married to them.
2: After initially denying the camps even existed, Beijing later defended them as vocational training centers aimed at reducing the appeal of Islamic extremism. Make of that what you will. Accounts from people who've actually been in these camps paint a very grim picture of mass rape, torture, forced medication and forced labour. Human rights groups also say people in the camps are made to take part in classes to learn Mandarin Chinese, swear loyalty to President Xi Jinping and criticise or renounce their faith. Armed guards are in the classes, they can't wear long beards or have actually anything to do with religion. According to one former camp guard who spoke to the BBC, inmates are locked in cells, there are cameras and surveillance systems everywhere. In recent weeks, further reports have documented how Uyghur women were forced to undergo medical sterilisation in a bid to reduce the population. The Uyghurs speak their own language, similar to Turkish, and see themselves as culturally and ethnically close to Central Asian nations. In terms of locating where this is happening, it's the far west of China, it's the country's biggest region, bordered by several countries including India, Afghanistan and Mongolia. Like Tibet, it's an autonomous region, meaning in theory it has a degree of self-governance away from Beijing, but in practice it faces major restrictions by the central government. One former detainee spoke to the BBC about being raped by three men in one of these camps. Uh, They also used an electric baton in the attack. Others have spoken about being tortured on an electric chair. So we wanted to talk about this and about what the world and Ireland is doing or should be doing to stop it. The Netherlands recently became the latest nation and first European nation to declare that Beijing's actions toward minority groups in Xinjiang amounted to genocide. Ireland became the 20th nation to sign up to an international cross-party alliance of lawmakers who are trying to create a coordinated response to counter China on global trade, security and human rights. Three senators and one TD have joined the Interparliamentary Alliance on China in a bid to secure a tougher stance on the country from the Irish government. The Dutch parliament, as I said, passed a motion on Thursday which said that genocide is underway in China against the Uyghur minority joining countries, including Canada and the United States, in applying that label of genocide for what is happening to the Uyghurs. Joining us today are two women who know an awful lot about the plight of the Uyghurs, Yara Alaga and Aydin Anwar. Yara is a parliamentary researcher in Shanadaran for the CEG, Civil Engagement Group. Her interests are in international justice and issues ranging from Palestinian rights, Uyghur Muslims in China and advancing minority rights here in Ireland. Aydin Anwar is a Uyghur American herself with over 93 relatives there who are missing She was born in the United States after her parents won asylum and her father has long fought for Uyghur rights. She previously served as the team lead of the Save Uyghur campaign. Yara is in Dublin and Aydin joined us from her home near Seattle in Washington state. I began by asking Yara to tell us about this dreadful situation in China with the Uyghurs.
1: Yeah, I mean, I suppose to simplify what's happening is this is described as the biggest human rights crisis in the world even though, in my opinion, it still isn't getting enough attention globally, including here in Ireland and in the West. So the Chinese government has been cracking down on the Uyghurs for decades. Post nine eleven, Beijing kind of took advantage of George Bush's so-called war on terror to brand all opposition to Chinese rule as being extremist Islamic terrorism, associated and affiliated to Al-Qaeda, But in recent years, uh, and namely 2014, they've gone a step further and and see all Uyghurs in China as being a potential terrorist and extremist and separatists. And in 2017, China began operating detention camps, or what they call vocational education and training centres. A panel of UN investigators have said that the number of Muslims detained could be up to 1 million. The US State Department are saying it's up to 3 million detained in what can be described as concentration camps. The population in Xinjiang is around 11 million. So between one in 10 and one in four Uyghurs are being forcibly detained in these detention camps against their will. You know, aside from, I suppose, the violence happening in in the camps, if I can even say that, um, we know from the China cables, the leaked documents that were published by the New York Times, that Uyghurs outside these camps are being targeted are being monitored and controlled. So we know there's this, you know, credit kind of scoring system. There's an app that's downloaded to their phones and the app it translates to uh, Xi Jinping Thought App. Xi Jinping is the Communist Party uh, or the president. Um, and this app kind of teaches the app users about uh, Xi Jinping activities and ideology. And depending on how well you score on the app, Uyghurs are permitted to do things like, you know, make a phone call. So based on how well you analyse and receive the information and denounce your religion, you're allowed to speak to your family. You know, Uyghur women are forced into marriages with with Han Chinese. So the Han majority Chinese. um, Uyghurs living overseas are suffering from harassment and intimidation by Chinese authorities. Their family members in China are targeted to suppress their activism abroad. I was recently reading there's um a French Uyghur refugee her name is Gulbahar and she's the author of a book called Survivor of the Chinese Gulag and she recounts her story of being lured back to China under the impression that she was signing documents for her for her retirement benefits for an old company she worked for in China sure enough it was a trap set up by the authorities and she kind of recounts her experience in in, in the camps she spent 2 years being subjected to psychological physical torture to the point that she was saying that detainees wouldn't speak to each other for days and weeks because of how physically taxing and mentally taxing the detention camps were you know the forced labor waterboarding the physical abuse the systemic rape that these women were subjected to the harvesting of organs she recounts you know she talks about the conditions she she had to sleep in a room with 68 other women so they had to you know the place was so small that they would have to take turns in sleeping, and and she would she said you know that her her feet were tied, her hands were handcuffed to her feet while she slept. She talks about how females were sent to be vaccinated, and it wasn't until because they weren't speaking to each other, it wasn't until they started to talk to each other once they confided in each other that they started to realize that they were no longer menstruating, and that's when it dawned on her that they were being forcibly sterilized in an attempt to essentially you know terminate. The population to ethnically cleanse this minority group. So we're talking about really, really extremely barbaric, merciless forms of torture and human rights abuses. We're talking about, you know, the Communist Party specifically targeting and rounding up Uyghurs. And based on this, you know, people make historic parallels to concentration camps. You know, at one point there was the extermination of the Jews based on their religion. And so people do called and referred to this as a modern day concentration camps. And we've never seen kind of this barbaric form of torture in the modern day era.
2: Yara, thanks for explaining that. Aydin, can I come to you? Thank you for joining us from Washington State. Tell us about the Uyghurs. Who are they? And what is uh, your perception? Because you have some very close links.
0: Right. So first of all, Uyghurs are a Turkic ethnic group. Um, they are one of actually multiple Turkic ethnic groups that actually live in East Turkestan or what uh, is widely unfortunately known as Xinjiang, which actually means new territory in Mandarin. So that name itself implies that there's been an occupation and that's one thing that's usually left out of the narrative. The East Turkestan is a nation that is occupied. It's been occupied most recently in 1949 when communist China came to power. Um, even the name East Turkestan itself implies that it's the land of the Eastern Turks. So it's majority, the majority Turkey population are the ethnic Uyghurs, but then you also have Kazakhs. Kyrgyz, Tatars, Uzbeks, and so on. Um, now, with the occupation having taken place in the past seven decades or so, you have actually more Han Chinese migrating into the region, usually by incentivized um, mechanisms from the government, saying that if you move into this region, we're going to give you free housing, a job, uh, you know, all of these benefits. Uh, this is just another way to slowly decrease our population. Uh, you know, take over the land and uh, carry out this occupation. So uh, ethnic Uyghurs are uh, unfortunately a population that I think a lot of the world still don't know about. Um, even when I introduce myself as an ethnic Uyghur to a lot of people, a lot of times they won't know. Or even five years ago, it was a no-brainer that nobody had no idea what I was talking about. So I would end up having to you know, go on a five-minute rant explaining who the Uyghurs are. Um, but now with, you know, the news and, we know, what is happening and this genocide taking place, I think more and more people are hearing about us. But there is this kind of misconception that we are um, a Chinese ethnic minority or a Chinese Muslims, which is a complete, um, you know, it completely removes the narrative of who we are as a people, as a a people who've lived with independence for centuries, as a people with a distinct uh, culture, uh, you know, us being Turkic, people who've actually gone to the region in the past um, as a tourist or as a journalist. They go to East Turkestan and they're like, there is no way that this is China. Like, how is this this even framed as China? They go, they see the architecture, the culture, the people speaking in this language. that That doesn't even sound anything like Chinese, right? If I speak the language, it sounds very much... Turkic like Uzbek uh sounds there's actually a lot of similarities with the Turkish language as well. So people go there and they're like this is not China. That's one thing I want to point out when when we're talking about this because again it's not really uh, understood as like this separate nation that has been under uh you know decades of occupation.
2: So I you have um, actual relatives who live there and work there and can you tell us because I know it's it's quite desolated now that whole region, right? Because of what's going on. So, so can you take us through what's happening to these people who are going about their business, going about their lives, trying to practice their religion, which obviously, as we know, you know, is a free free choice. Um, what is happening to these people?
0: So right now, uh, Yara kind of mentioned this and touched on this earlier, but um, China is basically using this global war on terror that was launched by the U.S. in 2003 to basically claim that these people of East Turkestan are potential terrorists, extremists, separatists. So China has three evils. So they, they have three things that they call as evils. They're separatism, terrorism, and uh, extremism. And they equate all the three. They say that they're almost the same. So if you happen to advocate for the independence of your occupied nation, you're immediately coined as a terrorist and extremist, Right. Um, they'll call that a separatist, even though I actually uh, don't. I hate that term because a separatism implies that you've always been a part of the Chinese state, which isn't true. Um, advocating for the independence of your occupied territories a, is a right that anybody should, you know, anybody has under international law. You know, if you are occupied, you have the right to uh, resist um, in in a lawful manner. Uh, so uh China uses its three evils to basically justify and say that these people are you know um using you know, are basically trying to break up China. Uh, and what's interesting about this is that most people there in East Turkestan actually are not really political at all. They're actually terrified for their life because they know that by doing something like that, they would actually be, you know, uh, either sentenced to prison, uh, executed. Uh, they wouldn't be able to live a quote unquote normal life, right? They just want to live with their family, They want to be able to survive. Whereas those in diaspora, we have more of that freedom because we're not within Chinese borders and uh, you know, we like I'm being born and raised in the States. Like I I have the ability to protest and, 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 you know, talk about this issue openly. So people there are not, a lot of them are not even openly political. They don't even, they can't even express their opinion about the Chinese government and their oppressive policies that they've been enacting for decades. Uh So what's happened is that China basically has used this, uh this, uh what they call the people's war on terror or the global war on terror to really, um, to stamp out the the Uyghur and other Turkic people there, um, and China uses, and I w- I would say that China sees the presence of Uyghur and other Turkic people of East Turkestan as a threat to their ability to maintain tight control over the region uh, because they know it's an occupied territory. This region I'd like to mention is also very rich in minerals and resources. Uh, It's so expensive. The land uh, is essentially the same size as California, Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, Utah, and Nevada combined. Um, So it's a really vast land. I encourage people to look it up if they don't really know where it is. It's it's right above Tibet, um, occupied Tibet that is. And, you know, and China is using this land specifically for the One Belt, One Road Initiative. Uh, which is this vast uh, you know multi trillion dollar project that was launched by China to basically have other countries be dependent on China economically um, and to ensure you know uh, pipelines and these all these resources that are that essentially are supposed to connect the entire world but the the main benefactor the person or the entity that is benefiting most from this is China itself, and they use that region itself is so critical in making sure that that road exists. So, going back to what I was saying, uh, you know, China is using, so they see the, the, the culture and the religion and the identity of Uyghurs and these Turkic people as a threat, right? And they want to see China homogenized into just one entity where everybody is Han Chinese. So, what China has been doing is basically trying to stamp out that. Uh, unfortunately, not even just through a cultural genocide. Uh, you know, Just trying to get rid of the culture and religion uh, Destroy our, um, our homes and our, and our traditional buildings Our mosques Getting rid of the language systematically But now, unfortunately, through uh, extermination Through putting people into actual concentration camps And by the way, this is the largest concentration camp system Since the Holocaust, to put it into perspective And this one million number that was put out officially in the media by In 2018, which by the way was almost three years ago uh, is a very conservative estimate. You know, a lot of us, uh, Yara mentioned that the US has uh, you know estimated this number could be up to three million. A lot of us estimate this is much more because it's not just people in camps; it's also those in actual prisons. And by the way, these prisons are also are basically camps on crack. These 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 facilities are aimed to indoctrinate forcibly these detainees, make them become atheist Chinese. Um, in the meantime, also enacting forms of torture, extermination, forced sterilization, um, rape, uh, both on the side of men and women. Uh, and then separating the children from the parents, putting them into a basically a kid version of a concentration camp. They're sent, The kids are sent to, the children of these detainees are sent to orphanages where, um, you know, I'm saying orphanages, even though their parents are still alive but these are essentially orphanages slash boarding schools where they are taught to hate their own religion their ethnic identity um are subject to things like abuse and torture and then at the same time you think you can think about the trauma that these kids are going through uh they have no idea what's happening they're not their parents are not there so this is kind of an overall um <laughs> uh, uh take as to like what is happening with the, with the camp system
2: I, Dean. so essentially from what you're saying, these claims of Islamic extremism are spurious and really you can be thrown into these so-called re-education camps for, for very little. Can you tell us a bit about that? Because you could even just mention God in your passing conversation and that can be enough to get you oh, yeah. thrown into one of these places.
0: 100%. So uh, it's not just somebody. OK, so that's a great question, first of all. And I wanted to point out that there is there was a report by the Human Rights Watch um, uh, in 2018 that basically gave a list of uh, of reasons you could be sent to a camp and this was a compiled through uh testimonies and people kind of submitting their experiences of how people were sent to camps uh you know and I'm just going to name a few of them just to show how ridiculous these reasons are and that you uh, uh you know you be even being uh, considered let's say a chinese abiding citizen or somebody who uh, you know, is even productive for Chinese society, uh, it doesn't save you from these camps. So for example, you could be sent to a camp because you uh, oh, you owned a tent, you own a compass, uh, you are praying, fasting, having a WhatsApp, having a VPN, having too many children, having traveled abroad, merely knowing somebody who has traveled abroad, not attending mandatory propaganda classes, not attending uh, mandatory flag raising ceremonies, not having your government ID on your person, on 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 yourself, not letting officials take your DNA, telling others not to sin, uh, eating breakfast before the sun comes up, uh, abstaining from cigarettes, abstaining from alcohol. Um, you know we have cases where we know that even saying, like you mentioned, saying the word God is forbidden. You have to replace the term God with Xi Jinping. Which is basically China's lifelong dictator, um, or or the CCP. So instead of so, a lot of us Muslims we like to say, uh, you know, if we say see you tomorrow, for example, we we like to add God willing at the end of it, right? Yes, we say inshallah. Inshallah,
2: is that it? Inshallah,
0: right? Um, But instead of saying inshallah, we have to say insha CCP or insha Xi Jinping. So essentially, we're taking the term God and replacing it with the Chinese Party. And so something like that can land you into a camp. And not even just a camp, but also a prison where you're then sentenced to... Ten to twenty years of prison, we know of people mm-hmm. in our community who've been sentenced to twenty years of prison for absolutely doing nothing right they had went abroad to see their family to abroad to attend their family's wedding in the u s happened to go back naively not realizing the the consequence of their action and then they they get they get sentenced to twenty years of prison the then China charges them with the crime of trying to separate the Chinese state they will use a separatism. Uh, you know, notion to say that or the excuse to say that these people are all dangerous with no absolutely no evidence at all. And they have no legal trial, no lawyer available. So these these people are just thrown into this this mass dark system.
2: And Aydin, you have over 90 relatives missing in these camps. So you have direct, you know, relations who you don't know, you know, some of them have died and some of them you don't know who, where they are. It must be Horrific for all of you in other countries looking on at this.
0: Oh, yeah. So I think one of the greatest um, struggles of the diaspora right now, the Uyghur diaspora, who have family back home, is that when you talk to each each family, there's not a single person who doesn't have family in these camps or in some kind of detention Or, or is considered missing. So for, for my family, you know, my, my father and I made an Excel spreadsheet and we basically went through each relative one by one to see, okay, do we know any information about them? We concluded that we knew absolutely nothing, other than the fact that we they are considered missing because we have no way of contacting them. Even though we have had their number before, we had been able to you know call them a few years before. Right now, in this digital age, you know, with this phone next to me, I can't pick up my phone and call my aunt and see how she's doing, right? Uh, and so, in that, in that fear of the unknown is one of the greatest uh, feelings. Uh, it's very overwhelming because you don't know exactly what's happening. Sometimes there are people in our community who've actually found out years later, after not being able to hear their mom's voice or their father's voice on the phone, that they found out that he's, that their first of all their parent was sent to a camp and that they came out dead. Um, so there are instances, unfortunately. I mean, for my family, we haven't, uh, you know, heard of anyone specifically who's come out dead, and uh, you know, that's like the most dreadful news that we'd ever receive. Uh, it's possible that it's happened already, but again, there's no way of finding out. Um, we know of some people that have been sentenced uh, or, or that have been sent to a camp. One of my, like my, my father's brother-in-law, for example, he had come to the United States to see if he could, you know, try to set up a business, resettle here, but things didn't really pan out the way he wanted to. So he decided to go back. And his family was there. His wife and his stepkids were there. Um, and upon his arrival at the Beijing International Airport, the uh, you know the Chinese officials, they put you know, this black bed ov- bag over his head and they take him to a camp. And since then, we don't know his condition. We don't know if he's alive or dead. And meanwhile, his kids are, um, and his wife are waiting outside in, in the airport. He just never comes out. And this was in 2017. So it's been around four years now, uh, almost four years. So uh, you know, this is, and this is just one of countless examples. Um, so yeah, that, that's my, and and I would say that compared to, and I'm, I'm really, really lucky and blessed to have my own parents and my siblings here, you know, have, I, I've, my family has been here for quite some time now. My family, you know, my father came in 1988. So we've been like my direct family, as in my, my parents and my siblings are safe here, but, I have like extended relatives, cousins, aunts, uncles, loved ones back home who have been subjected to this.
2: I'm just going to bring Yara back in. Yara, can you talk to us about why sometimes when these things are happening and they're far away from us? Um it's hard for people to get engaged and to worry and to wonder what they can do. Can you tell us why in Ireland it's really important that we, we care about this? I mean, it's, it's obviously like Idina said about uh, it's the biggest since the Holocaust. And we're talking about it in those terms. And that's the kind of scale of it. So can you sort of explain what we can do in Ireland and why we should be much more engaged than we are? Because one of the things is people don't seem to know an awful lot about this, even though it is so widespread and so awful.
1: Yeah, so I think it's extremely important that, you know, civil society, you know, we, we mobilise support here for the Uyghurs and fight on behalf of the Uyghurs because I think Ireland has a huge role to play in this. Um, I think we are hugely complicit in what's happening. I mean, um, I mentioned before, Roisin, when I first heard about what was going on, it was um around 2017, which was when the operation of these detention camps really came to light and there was more reporting around what was happening to the Uyghurs. And, you know, I was a student in UCD at the time in 2017. So, you know, as China is committing these human rights violations, you know, contravening UN and international law, UCD is building this the the Confucius Institute, which is this institute that promotes the study of China abroad. Um, And, you know, it's this gorgeous, you know, when you walk past it, it's a gorgeous, modern, airy glass building, which the Irish government contributed 3 million euro to. The partnership was signed by President of UCD, Andrew Deeks, and and Hanban, which is affiliated to the Chinese Ministry of Education, which is also considered the propaganda wing of the government. And this is the same ministry that's overseeing the incarceration, the detention, the torture of, of millions of Muslims in northwest China. And, you know, they're a partner of the Irish government. I mean we have a situation where our state officials and agencies are engaging with Chinese officials and celebrating their diplomatic relations and so you know China is is extremely successful in leveraging its economic power and really enjoys impunity because of it and um, China is Ireland's fifth largest trading partner and the EU are in the final stages of ratifying the EU China comprehensive agreement you know this really hugely controversial investment agreement that will uh, essentially remove investment barriers for China in the e- EU, and um, in EU trade markets and, and vice versa. So what this will mean is European investors will have obviously better access to Chinese markets like the financial services market. And what we do know is that Uyghurs are being exploited through slave labour. Um, so the question arises, you know, will Irish investors and businesses be dealing with Chinese companies and markets that exploit Uyghurs through forced labour? You know, where are the concerns around human rights abuses and slave labour that now we have f- feature in our own trade markets. So, you know, Ireland has a huge role to play in, 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 in its complicity.
2: I mean, just to say some of the figures, we, we um, imported in 2019 5 billion worth of goods from China and we exported 8 billion. So it's huge for us, um, huge numbers for Ireland. And are you saying, Yara, that this financial sort of relationship um, means that we're sort of turning a blind eye to this, essentially?
1: Oh, 100 percent. We totally um, shy away from criticising, scrutinising the human rights violations. And we're totally just succumbing to the wolf warrior diplomacy that has gotten, you know, China this far in its human rights abuses. Um, so definitely, they definitely do enjoy impunity because of it. Um, and Ireland has been silent on, on the issue for far too long. Um, And that's the problem. You know, the worst part is that it's a time bomb we're talking about here. I mean, as we speak here right now, you know, in northwest China, a Uyghur is being subjected to abuse, to violence, to rape. It's a state of urgency and, and should be treated as so.
2: Yeah. I didn't why is um so little happening? And why do you think the world is sort of staying silent? I've read a few articles about it over the last few years, but it's certainly not something that's kind of that trips off everyone's tongue or that everyone's talking about, despite the fact that the scale of what you and Yara have described. So what's your take on that? So
0: I think this is a great question. And I there are actually multiple dimensions to the answer. Um, I think there are multiple reasons why there isn't much people, many people talking about this. Number one could be, you know, lack of awareness. Um, you know, this may be the first time that somebody may be hearing about the extent of. Uh, how horrible all of this is happening. And then, you know, then they're like, okay, maybe we should do something about it. Secondly, um, is also, you know, the apathy of a lot of uh, governments around the world. And Yara touched base on this as well. But there are a lot of these governments that are so dependent on China economically that China uses its power to silence these countries. Right. Um, And when these governments aren't speaking out, there's a high chance that a lot of people don't know about it or just in general, um, you know, it, it just makes it seem like this is not really an issue because some of these governments may have historically spoken out for um, for oppressed peoples, but then when it comes to this particular issue, they are silent. Especially, you know, Muslim majority countries where we would expect something. Uh, for example, Pakistan. Uh, yesterday, Imran Khan he he tweeted congratulating China uh, for. Uh, Successfully alleviating poverty, um, you know, without with zero mention of what's happening to uh, East Turkestan and and the genocide that is taking place. And by the way, China uses this alleviating poverty as another excuse to basically justify going into our region and trying to quote unquote
2: develop it and and occupy it. Aideen, I, I just want to say as well that China completely denies all of these allegations. Um, and it says uh, it says that these camps are voluntary. So I just wondered what you have to say about that. That, so I would, China's response is
0: very interesting, uh, because they've gone from completely denying it, saying that there are no camps. I don't, we don't know what you're talking about, to then realizing, okay, well, they actually know there are camps. Like the international community, there's no way to say that there are none. So then they'll, they actually acknowledge, yes, there are camps, but these are re-education hospitals. And I'd like to point out, uh, one excerpt from a, a CCP official who basically was trying to explain or justify why these people were be sent to a camp i them. Um, Reading this off of an excerpt right now to, to show the language that was used. But this person, this communist party official said that these people were infected by an ideological illness. And that's why they have been chosen for re-education, right? So they've been quote unquote chosen. So obviously these people have not volunteered whatsoever. Um, and that if we do not eradicate religious extremism at its roots, the violent terrorist incidents will grow and spread over all over like a, malignant tumor, and that is why they must be admitted to a re-education hospital in time to treat and cleanse the virus from their brain and restore their normal mind. So oh my God, yeah, and and,
2: and in these camps, they they sort of are told to stay in a room and say there is no such thing as religion. There's no such thing as religion. This kind of thing over right. and over again. It's sort of, it's the ultimate of brainwashing, essentially. Right. I'm just wondering. I didn't. When people do get out, do they get the people who do get out? What's what's their story then? So
0: there have been multiple instances where people have quote unquote graduated, right. Uh, what does that even mean? And one thing I want to do point out is that China actually then claimed that this is a vocational training center where people are here to train for jobs, which is complete bogus claim because majority of these detainees are people with well-founded careers. They're educated or they're retired, so they're not trying to go back to work or they're in their teens. You know where they're supposed to be going to college or high school and finish up their schooling. Um, so you know these. Are that, I just want to point that claim out there so people under, You know have a have an idea. But going back to your question. So um, they will claim that these people have, you know, let's say have they they've mastered the Mandarin language, for example. They've 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 understood the Chinese law, um, and oftentimes, unfortunately, though, when people are released, it's very interesting because some of these people would get released, and as soon as they get released, they would die. And a lot of the speculation around this is is we're thinking, okay, why release them when their health is so bad? They've been tortured so badly that you know they die once they are released from the camp, and. You know, we're thinking this is probably because China doesn't want the the death of them to be associated with these camps, right? Instead of saying these people died in a camp, once we realize these these people have been deteriorating so much, they release them as soon as that that the brink of death has arrived. We know of uh, you know, there's one individual um in our community who had a very dear friend who was sent to a camp. He was around, he was in his forties. A uh, well-respected, you know, um, well-educated man who was sent to this camp, and immediately he, he, so he did get released from this camp, but immediately after upon release, he was uh, sent to a hospital and bled to death. For what reason we don't know why, uh, you know, we don't know the exact cause of it. But these are very sinister and and like not the way that we think a release should should look like, right?
2: No, definitely not. I didn't, I just, I want to get on to what people can do who are listening, because I know that a lot of our listeners will be very upset and hopefully mobilized by by hearing all of this. But before we do, just because this is the women's podcast, could you just outline the types of things that are happening to women and girls, particularly in these camps?
0: Yeah. So I think uh, Yara mentioned this as well uh, when she was describing uh, one of the former survivors experience in these camps. And I'd encourage everyone to look into uh, a recent report by BBC and CNN uh, about the systematic rape and torture of these Uyghur women. Uh, I, I I myself had a really hard time. I didn't even get to finish reading it because it was just too heavy. Uh, it's basically almost like a death notice for a lot of us Uyghur diaspora who have loved ones in these camps. Um, and to have these graphic horror images going through our head of what is happening to our beloved you know, Uyghur sisters um, is, is just too much for the human it's too much for the human heart to bear, or the human mind to even bear. Um, but I would like to say that these Uyghur women uh, are subjected to, uh, you know, mass rape, gang rape, um, to, you know, <laughs> it's hard for me to say it because I talk about it so much, but it's also very emotional. Um, there have been reports of Han Chinese men coming into these camps and choosing what they deem as, you know, beautiful women and choosing them to um, to choosing them to have, to have to rape them or to actually get married to them. Uh, Yara mentioned this as well, but there are Uyghur women being forced to marry Han Chinese men. Uh, and this is another way to get rid of the next population. But essentially the threat is that if you uh, do not marry this Han Chinese man, we're going to send you, the rest of your family to the camps, or we're not going to release your family to the camps. Uh, and so these women are often left with no choice but to do that. Um, but more particularly, the horrors in these camps are something that I feel like more and more evidence will be coming out eventually. But the testimonies that we've received are the most horrific. I don't even want to expri- express those details. Yeah, um, there, a know,
2: lot of them are very graphic. And if you can just imagine yeah. the worst, the most unimaginable horrors inflicted on women, and like you say, not just women, on men and boys as well. It's 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 just too much to bear. And especially as someone who's part of the diaspora, Yara, can you talk to me about what people listening can do? Because sometimes, again, things are very far away. We're not engaged. We think we're helpless and hopeless. There's nothing we can do. But for example, there's calls to boycott um, the Winter Olympics in Beijing and things like that. What what should people be aware of?
1: I think people should be aware of first of all, Ireland has recently secured a seat on the UN Security Council, um, and the fact is it, we we committed and pledged to pursue accountability during our campaign for that seat, and um, that we ho- uphold you know this commitment and hold China to account uh, for its crimes against humanity and its its cultural genocide, to push and lobby for independent investigations by international observers into the crimes committed and, and the activities in detention camps. But I, th- I suppose for like an ordinary apolitical person in Ireland, I think what we could be doing is supporting Uyghur human rights initiatives. The wor- the, the Uyghur World Congress is an amazing organisation run and led by Uyghurs. Um, there's a coalition of over 70 organisations, including Uyghur rights groups, anti-slavery organisations, um, labour rights campaigners who have actually published a list of global fashion brands that are complicit in the forced labour. So you can find this extensive list of brands that we all love, I mean, including Gap, Adidas, Tommy Hilfiger and Calvin Klein, who continue to source from the northwest region, from Xinjiang and from factories connected to the forced labour of the Uyghurs. I mean, my friend, we have been commenting on the posts of these brands on, you know, social media, on Instagram, and we've successfully gotten replies from them. So it's effective, it's easy, but it places pressure on these brands to disassociate themselves from these slave labour factories. And also, like I said, you know, lobbying our own EU Trade Commissioner, Mairead McGuinness, in ensuring the EU is upholding human rights and and not complicit in the slave labour when it comes to the EU-China investment agreement using our security see lobbying our government officials. There's some of the things and boycotting these global fashion brands and boycotting the Beijing Winter Olympics. These are all things that we could be actively pursuing um, and, and fighting for.
2: Thanks, Yara And Aidan. what about you? What do you think um, should be done or can be done again, like by just people sitting by and often thinking we can't do anything?
0: right uh one thing that i i do like to add is if if somebody's involved in a university so if let's say they're a college student or an academic, um, they can get their university involved. You'd be surprised to see how many universities are actually very tightly tied with the Chinese government. You got to mention the Confucius Institute. A lot of these universities have these institutes on their campus promoting Chinese culture, language. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that aspect of it. But the, the part that is usually problematic is the fact that it's funded by the Chinese government most often. And with that, you have the Chinese government uh, enacting soft power on on. You know, abroad, Um, American universities, particularly, I know there are multiple like with MIT, which is like one of the most elite universities had partnerships with three Chinese tech companies uh, that were basically uh, directly used to surveil and round up people into these camps. Um, you never expect an American university that is so prestigious to be tied to something like that, but they were. Um, so there were campaigns to, uh, you know, call out MIT for what they were doing. Um, and eventually, I think MIT actually then, uh, cut off ties with, uh, one of them, uh, Huawei. Uh, and so we, we call on people to really investigate their university's ties. I know, uh, I, so I graduated from Duke University a couple of years ago. Um, It's a university based in North Carolina, and they have a campus on China um, called the Duke Kunshan University. I'm actually scheduled to speak there this uh, Thursday uh, online, obviously. But what's so interesting about this is that Duke Kunshan University said that they can't advertise this event to students at Duke Kunshan. So I'm speaking to a class of students who are enrolling at Duke Kunshan, but the professor said he's not attending either. And I'm like, I'm just confused, but also not surprised because I'm like, why would you, why would this event be taking place in the first place? It's like, they want to talk about the situation, but they're so scared. And there's this, this immense censorship, uh, even though it's technically a Duke branch that is run by, uh, you know, that where the head is, uh, is a university based in the States. They're still being um, very tightly controlled as to what they can even talk about uh, on China, in China.
2: I not, can I just ask you about your own personal situation again? Is your father able to return back safely? Does he ever go back, or would you ever go there? What's the story? That's a great
0: question. Uh, my father, ever since leaving uh, in uh, you know decades ago, he uh, has only gone back once, but he wasn't actually supposed to. His his father had passed away, uh, and he was just kind of he managed to somehow get to. Um, East Turkestan. But once they found out that he had gone there, uh, it was kind of like he already knew this was his last chance and last time. Uh, He went basically for his father's funeral and that was it. Um, But if it wasn't for that instance, he would have never gone. Um, He would never have been able to go. Um, And um, I myself have been once in 2008 to visit my, you know, to kind of see the place for the first time, uh, you know, visit my cousins, meet my aunts and uncles uh, but this was before the the crackdown got really, really bad. So it was still possible to visit, but there was still surveillance. You know, we would be followed whenever we'd go out. There would be like a black car following us. My mom got interrogated saying, well, you know, what are you guys doing here? Uh, so there was still a lot of, um, you know, kind of uh, surveillance taking place when we did go. Uh, but now it's completely impossible to go. And I think I wouldn't recommend anybody trying to go because it's so dangerous. Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't trust even if you are let's say an american citizen where you have you know these what's supposed to be this a set of protection uh for again i mean for you if you're going to a foreign country i would not you know be surprised if there was some kind of setup to make sure that something happens to you or some or you get harmed
2: yeah, um, I'm sorry to hear that. I'm sorry to hear about all of it. But finally, Yara, and I'll come to you and ask you that, Idean as well, about um, how hopeful you are, because you've outlined very well the power of China, the financial ties, the political pressure to not speak out against this. Is is, it, is there any hope that um, this activism and this highlighting of, of the situation is, is going to make a difference?
0: Um, I think there i have to be hopeful right as somebody in the diaspora and, and going through like we feel like sometimes we feel, it feels like we're suffocating but we're not we're not actually dying because of what's happening um but in some ways we are seeing some progress being made like we have um the US officially designated as a genocide in January and then we have uh, the Can- the Canadian parliament also calling it genocide Last week, and then we have uh, the Dutch government calling it a genocide. So we're starting to see the slow, uh, you know, the slow pickup of, of these of these big moves that will that will make a difference. Um, but it's going to take some time and patience, and I think uh, that's the key. Um, but I think people should continue to do what they can on a more individual, local level. Um, you know, calling. You know, even there, I would say people should also. Um, Ask about the local Uyghur community in in Ireland or wherever they are listening to this um, and do make efforts to kind of support the community, support the refugees, ask them what they can do to help um, and also just talk about this issue a lot more. Um, You know, let this be a conversation at the dinner table or not just something you listen to on a podcast um but yeah i would say it is unfortunately something because we're seeing such overall silence the past few years um you know and with everything happening day by day in with this genocide we know people are dying being tortured at this very moment it is very hard to think you know everything something will change overnight because it won't but there is like that's where collective action needs to take place and you know, we'll see. Start to see something.
2: I presume, um, before I come to Yara on this, I presume, Iden, that you uh, wouldn't have expected Trump to do anything about this, but now that Biden's in charge, is there any more hope there? Um, and our own Samantha Power is involved now, uh, still with with the administration. Um, is there is there moves that Biden might care about this a bit more?
0: Yeah, so I, I do want to say that the Trump administration actually did make some moves. Um, you know, pushing it. F- I, should, I shouldn't forward. have
2: spoken so soon. No, that's it's okay. Terrible. No,
0: because <laughs> no, overall we would never expect Trump himself to do something. Him, he himself actually, actually said that he supports these camps, saying that Muslims should oh. be in these camps. So he's he's just okay. an idiot and doesn't know what he's talking about. Um, but the Trump administration um, did was very active on this uh, issue, and that's something that I think a lot of people don't really talk about. But and we also understand that it's also part. It was also part of the administration's political moves to be against China. I don't think they actually care about True. you know, people in camps. But we can't also delegitimize, you know, uh the move itself because it was huge. But uh Biden, he um there was, you know, before he got elected as president, he did call it a genocide, which was really big ho- you know, it was hopeful for a lot of us that he would be doing something. Unfortunately though, there was a uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago, you know, he was he was asked about China and um it it, it could have be it could have been a result of just his speech being kind of cut off or no one really understood exactly what he was trying to say but it sounded like he was trying to justify what china is doing calling it uh calling what, he's saying that what china is doing is part of china's norms but again i, I don't want to say definitely what he meant and what he said so we actually to- so, told him yeah. that he needs to be very articulate and very clear about what he is trying to say about china and what they're doing yeah. because
2: so you know, we not, it, need to get a bit more clarity on right. that before we can make a judgment. But Yara, can I come to you about hope? Um, what I've asked uh, Idine about, how hopeful are you given the power of China and all those political and financial um, ties?
1: I think, I mean, we see recently, um, like i mention mentioned, um, by you know, the Trump administration come out, you know, we have states like Canada, we have EU states like the Netherlands who came out and declared it a genocide, um, which is obviously you know it, it certainly meets the the legal definition of of a cultural genocide um the Shannon actually put, passed a motion um condemning china for human rights violations um which is also you know welcome um but like I said, I don't think, I think there should be done, you know, we should be using our diplomatic channels to to really make sure we are placing the sanctions. Um, we are ensuring, you know, independent investigations um, by international observers. So I am hopeful. I just think, like I said, I think we need to mobilise civil society support, mobilise, you know, the public in Ireland and really just raise awareness and, and, and have it in public conscious consciousness that you know there's this genocide happening at the backdrop
2: well we can um certainly try and help by putting your uh social profiles up on our uh in the description on this podcast and people can follow you and they can hear what you have to say and you can share links to to what is going on um have you got a final word Iden, before we go and i want to say thank you to both of you for being so clear about something that again a lot of people don't know about but final word to you Iden.
0: Uh, I would just like to say thank you for everyone listening to this point. Uh, it's, it was a heavy topic. And, um, you know, if you came out learning more than you did you know before, we ask you to please, you know, share this information with others. Do your research. There are actually tons of articles and reports out there nowadays where you can learn so much more and, and use your creative measures to, to do what you can. You know, people ask specifically what they can do, but at the same time, there are ways that you can... You know, use your talents, use your abilities to to do to, to make to do action. Um, you know, within your own scope. Not everybody wants to be outspoken. Not everybody wants to speak on podcasts. You know, but there are ways that you can definitely make a change um, in your community, uh, and you don't have to be Uyghur uh, in order to um, to to be an activist or to to advocate for this population. Uh, but again, just keep us in your prayers. Don't forget about us, and let this be an ongoing conversation, ongoing. Issue that we all are putting on the forefront.
2: Thanks very much to Yara and Ideen for telling us all about that terrible situation in China. And, you know, I suppose there's things we can all do, but just informing ourselves is the first thing. And hopefully uh, there's going to be more probation from the world and from Ireland about what is happening there. The podcast is produced by me, Roshi Ningle, and by Suzanne Brennan and Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. If you want to get in touch about anything, email us thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com or find us on social at ITWomensPodcast. Mind yourselves and I'll talk to you next time.